Coming to you from Final Third Cigar and Whiskey Lounge in Ingalls, Indiana. Indiana's exclusive Aladino Cigar Lounge. It's the Final Third Podcast. Welcome back to Final Third Podcast. I'm Rob. I'm Isaiah. We got a couple special guests with us. We're live on location. Actually, not live, but we are on location. We're live right uh, now. I am alive. We are live. Yeah. Uh, But we're over here at Spirits of French Lick with Alan Bishop. Mm -hmm. What's up, guys? And... Justin? We got Justin over here. What's I don't your know your last name. Whaley. Whaley. There you go. I knew I was going to forget that. <laughs> could have made up anything right there. You could have. Right. It's Dustin. Uh, Dustin. It's Dustin. Get it right. Yeah. But uh, we're over here today. Going to be talking about some of the things that they do because, well, we got a couple barrels coming in from them. Absolutely. And uh, we're going to be couple, tasting through those two barrels today, yeah, too. we are. Got a couple questions for you to answer eventually. We'll yeah. get to that, though. Yeah. yeah, and honestly, the big thing for us is we just wanted to come down and and get more people to know who you guys are, yeah. um, learn a little bit more about you. I mean, when I come down here and met you, what was that, early spring, spring late yeah. su- late winter, whatever I was, you know, I was just floored by the knowledge you were mm-hmm. spewing out, and that just was on me showing up on a visit, you know? Right. Like, even, like, really doing it seriously. It was just like, you're telling me all these stories. I'm like, damn, there's a lot <laughs> of information here that there I is. had no clue about. And I'm sure most of our guys will love that as well. So yeah, I'm all about it. It's always fun hanging out with you guys, anyways. So uh, we definitely had a good time last time you were here for the barrel pick. And, good and uh, had a great time. Tore up some barrels for sure. <laughs> we sure so, did. We sure did. That was the tour day. Also, yeah. I I went home and went to sleep. Must have been nice. <laughs> that was nice. Yeah. Actually, I didn't even make it home. I made Dad drive home, and I slept on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you live about half hour from here. About hour, an hour, hour from here. Hour. Yeah. Wow. He does too. Yeah, Do you hour really? the other yeah. direction. Yeah, <laughs> he's that way. I'm that way. Oh, geez. Okay. All well, right. Give us a like super quick elevator pitch for Spirits of French Lick. What is it? What do you guys make? And why should people be interested? So we are the largest pot still distillery in the state of Indiana. Uh, We've held that title since we got into the distilling industry in 2016, April 2016, we started distilling. Um, I suspect that we'll maintain that title because everybody else is putting in column stills. Right. There's nothing wrong with that, but we're playing into the history of distillation here in Southern Indiana, specifically in a geographic region known as the Black Forest of Southern Indiana, which is Washington, Orange, Lawrence, Crawford, Harrison, and Perry counties where between 1858 and 1914, there were 155 plus legal operating distilleries making primarily apple brandy, which is why your picks are special to me. Apple brandy and and absinthe in particular are my passions. Nonetheless, uh, it's called Spirits of French Lick for a couple reasons. Uh, The main reason is because to us, we're paying tribute and homage to the history of Southern Indiana. So it's not just the spirits in the bottle, it's the spirits of the place. That's why everything is named after a historic character from the Black Forest region. Lee Sinclair, Solomon Scott, Maddie Gladden, or we name it after a location like the Morning Glory or Old Clifty Apple Brandy. Try to bring those stories back to the forefront and be able to tell those stories. And it's kind of a form of what we think of as like necromancy because, you know, if you tell a story about Lee Sinclair, nobody in New Orleans knew who Lee Sinclair was, despite how famous and how popular he was at one point in time, until we put a bottle of whiskey out. So we were able to kind of bring those characters back, pay tribute to them, et cetera. Hmm. Our motto is respect the grain. And the idea behind that is that 
grain has terroir in the same way that grapes have terroir. So the land and everything around the land is influencing the character of the raw materials you're making the spirit out of. So we very much so want to put our emphasis on that. We focus on double pot still distillation for retention and concentration of flavor. We try to do a more of a blend and balance. If you talk to a Kentucky guy, they're going to say 60, 70% of their flavor profile is coming from the barrel. For us, it's more 50-50. We want 50% raw material fermentation and distillation, and then 50% maturation on top of it. And we don't want to lose that because that pot still character is very much so about representing what the raw material was when it was ripe in the field. So that's really kind of our focus overall. We sort of have um, four pillars. So bourbon, brandy, uh, American whiskeys, which would be like rye whiskey, and then eventually single malt. We do have some single malt put back, uh, and then botanical spirits. So things like gin, absinthe, um, aquavit, et cetera. Uh, but really, it's kind of a ready, fire, aim philosophy. So when you're a craft distiller, you have to be quick. You have to be nimble. You have to be fast on your toes and do things that big guys can't, even the mid-tier craft distillers can't really do. So you make a lot of stuff, you come up with a lot of stuff, and you kind of see what sticks to the wall as it were. So. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, and I think uh, <coughs> you and I have, nerd, well, you way more than I have, but nerding out on, on absinthe. And mm -hmm. I've used your absinthe since we've opened up for, our, for my um, Sazerac cocktail. Excellent. And I, I love it on its own, sipping on it. So I'm super excited, you know, to try your yeah. little... Um, Rob had never tried it before, and I had a bottle of the Absinthe Le Blue. Yeah, I had um, never tried yours before <coughs> until that I, day. Yeah. I think Excuse I had me. got it at a Total Wine or something like that. Yeah. Yep. And uh, brought it in because I knew Rob liked Absinthe, and especially for his Sazeracs, which is, I mean, it's mm -hmm. one of the defining characteristics Perfect. of that cocktail. But using something like the Absinthe Le Blue, it shines through just like you want it to. And actually, it's good to sip on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a, it's a definitely a very um, uh, Americanized Absinthe, a much lighter style of Absinthe. You know, we took the traditional mm -hmm. uh, Swiss uh, Le Bleu from the Val de Traverse, and we lightened it a little bit, and we sweetened it a little bit because that's what we like mm -hmm. here in southern Indiana. Yep. Um, and it's a good entry-level Absinthe, and that's, yeah. that's exactly what we're after, so... Well, good deal. Speaking of things to drink, what are we starting on? Yeah. My glass is still dry. <laughs> I know. Mine is bright and sad. All right. So these are the two barrel picks that uh, you guys and uh, Indiana Bourbon did the last time you were here. So I believe this one, the first one, uh, I got to take my glasses off so I can see what what number is. Is there a number on there? Yeah. 1146. Uh, 1146 and it's a five-year. And that's a new oak barrel, right? That's what we did that one in. No, that was a. That was uh, Lee Sinclair. Those are reused Lee W. Sinclair barrels from yeah, the yeah. very first batch of Lee. That's what it was. You were correct. And Good it deal. is hazmat at 140.9 proof. So Hell five yeah. years old. Uh, <laughs> we know how to pick them. Let's listen, do it. It won't fix it, but it'll probably make you forget about it for a little while. It might. It might. <laughs> More than likely. Well, I'm excited I'm to get into this again. Like that. I'll let you that's guys pour so I don't knock anything over. It's all good. But uh, yeah, so, <coughs> Justin, you want to tell uh, tell the people here what you do around here? Cleans the bathroom, clean the bathroom, and break everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, what did I, you break today? I, honestly, yeah, Justin, I don't think I broke, break today. I don't think I broke anything today. I found some problems that needed nothing, fixed, nothing. but uh, so I'm the assistant distiller here. I've been working here since last <laughs> what April. You meant to say sorry. What you meant to say was. I identified the things I broke yesterday that I didn't tell Alan that I broke. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't supposed to know that. But, you know, Jedi mind tricks and all. Uh, so I'm the assistant distiller here. I've been working here since last April. Um, Alan likes to joke that I was kind of like a little orphan Justin. 
showing up on the doorstep. Uh, <laughs> honestly, that's what it was. Uh, I tell everybody that I had done some charity boxing and done a uh, distillery tour here the day after one of my fights and started hanging out with Alan. I did a little bit of drone work and stuff like that for the, the people out front. Um, crashed my drone the first day here, oh, no. actually. <laughs> um, but started hanging out with Alan. I uh, was coming in like once a week on my days off from uh, my job that I had prior to this. And it turned into wanting to learn more about it, and they hired me on. Uh, for some reason, I still don't understand why, because there's a whole joke about one of the single barrels that went somewhere else, and I complained about it because it should have got released here first. Me and Alan go back and forth on it. Went to Texas, and it was a whole thing. But, <laughs> um, yeah, so I pretty much just learned from Alan, uh, try to learn something every day. Uh, that's one of the things I f believe very firmly is you never stop learning. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to anything in life, if you do, then you should be getting out of whatever you're doing. Um, Agree. So that's that's my thing here is just try to learn and take everything in. To be fair, no one from Indiana was asking for weird single barrels, but people from Texas definitely were. <laughs> well, you know, I can't speak for everybody else in Indiana because it's Indiana. Just a happy married hey, couple. Hey, there's this little um, cigar and whiskey lounge that'll be getting all kinds of weird <laughs> stuff. <laughs> well, yeah. it, it's changed now in the past couple of years, yeah. thankfully. Indiana was a late adopter for us, like – we caught on in other states way before we caught on in Indiana for some odd reason. It's that um, self-hate thing you always talk about. Yeah. Who's your who's your self-hatred? Nothing good ever happens in Indiana, and nothing good could ever come from Indiana. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's the, the people who are from Indiana with no, uh, with no background in Kentucky, didn't even go to college in Kentucky, but they somehow have a Kentucky license plate or a UK <laughs> Wildcats emblem on their vehicle, <laughs> right? There's no, there's no limestone in Indiana. You can't make bourbon in Indiana. Yeah. yeah, the river's magic. <laughs> exactly. Oh my goodness! So, this is so there good. is almost a uh, a toasted marshmallow sort of sweetness on the nose of mm -hmm. of this, and you can definitely sp smell a little bit of barrel spice. And uh, on the palate, this is my first sip of whiskey for the day. Me like, too. Rob and I had a cigar on the way down here, but it was there's a light one. Yeah, the Pice Anastasia, always a good morning cigar. So um, I I agree gosh. with you. There's a there's a graham cracker note on this, and there's a caramel note on it, and it clearly comes from that Lee Sinclair barrel that this went into. So mm -hmm. Lee Sinclair is our sixty percent corn, <laughs> seventeen wheat, thirteen oat, and ten percent caramel malt uh, bourbon, and this was from like barrel eight or ten yeah two. It was like one of the first barrels first wow. couple batches of Lee Sinclair that we recycled from our two year old. Um, and then just so you guys know, so this is all all apple brandy distilled from 100% uh, Michigan fresh, fresh pressed apple juice um, using a South African brandy yeast called Ven 13 that I've been using uh, the, the majority of my career. And that barrel would have spent its entire life in the, the room that you all are in. Yep. Yeah. So, and I, I mentioned You want to talk real quick about this room for, uh, for the people on the other side? Yeah. Like what goes on Because I was here, real interested when here. you told me yeah. about that when I was here last time, Alan. Yeah. So this is, um, this is what we call our barrel shy or our barrel cellar. Um, this is much more in common with like what you're going to see in Cognac or in Normandy or Calvado style distillation. You'll also see something like this at Copper and Kings in their actual basement that they have. Um, and the idea behind this, we have two different kinds of warehouses. So we have this warehouse connected directly to the distillery. Although it is not actively heated or actively cooled, it works off the passive heating and cooling of the building itself, uh, essentially. 
So what it also does is it tends to hold a little higher humidity. Temperatures only fluctuate 30, 40 degrees throughout the year. So we get the full effect of all four seasons. When you're in an outside warehouse like our other two warehouses, which are much more like barrel barns or pole barns, when you get in the cold weather, there's a certain point where nothing happens within that barrel. So within this room, we get the effect of all four seasons, but we also don't get crazy high temperatures, which drive off volatility or the aroma of the spirit itself. So about 90% of what you taste is actually what you're smelling. And with things like apple brandy, where it's so volatile anyways, and it's so kind of delicate, if you were to put this in a really hot warehouse, you would lose that apple aroma very quickly. And you wouldn't have a differentiating factor between this and say a bourbon, which in particular with the Hoosier style of apple brandy, the aroma is very, very important because as, as I'm sure you guys have noticed as you're drinking this, it drinks much more like a bourbon than any other apple brandy I think that's out there on the market. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's very bourbon adjacent. Uh, we like to say that apple brandy is kind of bourbon's sexier older sister as it were. So, um, and it's Do you guys very, like your sisters down here? Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> Stepsisters don't count. Oh, so, uh, okay. I'll listen, keep that in mind next time. That's I'm just in all a stepsister is, is a girlfriend that lives in your house. <laughs> okay. So it, it I'm going to, I'm going to rabbit to go trail south. this that's, right now. And I haven't even had a drink yet. So Rob and <laughs> I on the last show, <laughs> somebody complained that we were getting a little bit too redneck because somehow we got on the topic of skinning squirrels and how to Hell do yeah. it best. Up underneath um, the tail, get that strip, and you go around the back legs and all in one go. Pull it off like some pants, it's man. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Like a um, stocking. But then uh, Rob said, oh, we'll show them. We're about to have Alan Bishop yeah. on the show. <laughs> well, oh, yeah. Welcome to Hoosier Occupied Northern Kentucky. Yeah. Um, that's what we call it. So if you think about it in a lot of ways, Indiana, it could kind of be divided into two states. There's southern Indiana, and then there's everything north of that. Yeah. Nothing wrong with the rest of the state. But once you move past about Columbus, Indiana, culturally, things tend to change. Yeah. In southern Indiana, you have a lot more, um, let's say, old world sentimentality. In particular, you have a lot more in common with, like, eastern Kentucky and even northern Kentucky. So, you know, what, we call it Hoosier Occupied Northern Kentucky, essentially, is its own country. Uh, and if you abbreviate that, it spells the word honky. So <laughs> That's great. Well, oh, that's uh, awesome. Yeah. No, oh, that's amazing. This yes. you ever eat turtle? Yes, love turtle. Yeah. Okay, good. We're in no, good company. No, I've uh, all we were my just talking about some turtle soup Indiana. the other day, man. The, my uh, the, my only problem with turtle soup is skinning the turtle. Oh, that's uh, a pain. That's the. I found that the easiest way to do it is to cut a slit in the back of the neck and stick your air compressor hose in there. That's a blow, new one on me. I hadn't you, heard that. You've <laughs> never seen someone do that? Yeah. No, I have not. Blow, I do that blows them up like a balloon, and mm. that's the uh, it, it separates the skin immediately. It's disgusting. <laughs> but, um, but I am honestly surprised you've never seen that because, like, no. I've done it with a deer before. You're pretty much making like a Macy's blimp <laughs> <laughs> that never floats, right? That's hey, Doctor Johnston, you're welcome. Yes, like, <laughs> I have. Uh, I've seen the water hose trick. Okay. Uh, where you where you where you cut the turtle's head off and shove the water hose into the turtle and then it blows up and then you can peel the shell and everything off. 
but I've never seen the air the air hose trick. That's a new one on me. I'm yeah. gonna have to try that. The water yeah. might clean a little bit better than just blowing it up, let it shatter everywhere. <laughs> Get all that nasty yeah. shit coming well, out the other end. It's, it's just the <laughs> you know, it's, I, it's wild. I joked with my wife the last time because I didn't I didn't butcher any last year. I will this year. I'm gonna throw out a couple lines here in the swamp behind the building here in a couple days. There, that's how redneck we are here. We catch <laughs> turtles at work. Yeah, um, you got to keep the snappers under control. But I had the year before last. I think I had four or five, and it was just so hot I couldn't get them butchered. So we kept them in a in a trough in the yard, and it became like a, a daily ritual for me and my daughter to go feed them. And we kept these turtles for like three months, man. Did by they the, get names? But, no, they didn't get names. <laughs> but by the time that we butchered them, I you might I mean honestly, we spent so much money on hot dogs feeding these turtles, like. <laughs> <laughs> it was just processed hot dog meat is yeah. all of us. <laughs> Tastes like a swamp dog. Right. It's a swamp yeah. dog. So I will say back to the brandy yeah. here. This to me is is like car- caramel apple mm-hmm. cobbler. The <laughs> thing that stuck out for me on this one, especially on our pick day, was the amount of spice it has just to balance out that sweetness. Yep. It's still a distinctly um, sweet spirit. And it's, yeah. it's not spicy. I'll get into some medicinal rice that I absolutely love. Mm-hmm. But this is perfectly balanced. And I I love that. Because you don't see that a lot in the no. brandy world. Any any sort of barrel spice or anything like that. Or when you do. And I, I don't mean this as a, as a knock against them in any way, shape, or form. Because I have all the respect in the world for them. But when you do it, it'll be something like Laird's where it almost goes too far. Yeah. And there's no apple. Yeah. yeah. You know, and Laird's hat there are some of Laird's releases that do have that issue in my opinion. But that's the that's the beauty of this thing is you're trying to balance with with our style of Hoosier apple brandy is you want to balance the apple aromatics, the baked apple flavor and for me there's a lot of like apple crisp in particular yes. because yep. yes. those oats from the Lee Sinclair are still showing up in this from that used barrel they and really are. just to Absolutely. me straight up apple crisp. But then you so and then you want the grace of it but then you also want the power behind it, right? Yeah. Because if I'm going to get a bourbon drinker to buy a couple bottles this year, it better be something that they can relate to, right? Yeah. If I throw a Calvados in front of a bourbon drinker, they're going to be like, what the hell is this? Yeah. You know, it's too light. It's too delicate. It's not got enough of anything. You know, this is this is something that feels like home, something that feels familiar. You know, it, it's kind of like a prettier version of your wife, I guess, really, right? So like your cousin. <laughs> yeah, like your, yes, your cousin wife. <laughs> Step cousins don't count. <laughs> Those are girlfriends that live with your uncle and aunt. <sighs> but no, this, this this still does drink like a high proof bourbon. It does. It, but you'd think at five years, if there was a hazmat bourbon at five years, it would just be so hot mm-hmm. that I think it'd be unbearable. <clears throat> yeah, you wouldn't. But get this the this is getting. hazmat. This is super sweet. Has a little bit of spice, but it's not the eth- the ethanol burn. No, um, this is why I was so excited about doing this pick is because you know we have, of course, Indiana. You have a lot of bourbon lovers now in Indiana that are chasing bourbon, but to introduce them to a different style that's going to still fit the portfolio right. that they like, and all, honestly, just open it up because I think once people try these, they're going to be they're going to be hunting, you know, some higher proof brandies yeah. out there. Yeah. And I, the only one other than than this one that I enjoy. Well, you, you like the Alon Cantata, which is not really a brandy, but it is. Well, ish. They, but the um, some of them they finish in bourbon barrels, which turns yeah. it into a brandy. Right. Otherwise, the, uh, it's the an Copper Armagnac. and Kings, which I know you or yeah, Copper mm-hmm. and Kings, you were a part of. Um, that's the one that we've had on our shelf since we opened up. Yep. And I think when people try this, they're going to realize what what this stuff really does. So getting into that, 
I, I'd like to talk about your start into distillation. Everything that you're willing to talk about. Are we allowed to cuss on this show? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Nobody I, I, cares. I, okay, because I've been yeah. holding back because I didn't know. No, no, no. Go for it. So, this is extremely just casual. Just don't gotcha. say fuck. Don't say fuck? Yeah. Fuck yeah. damn. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. <laughs> just go straight to George Carlin. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Exactly. I'd like to go there. <laughs> so I, our I, people would yeah. like to hear about your entrance into distilling. And there's a lot of heritage even from the side that wasn't particularly legal in, right. in your family lineage. And if you're comfortable with it, yeah. talk about that too. Absolutely. Well, I think it's interesting you guys mentioned the Copper and Kings thing because there is some <clears throat> there's some DNA in this that is similar to the Copper and Kings aesthetic right now i probably took took this a little further as far as like pushing the boundaries more towards bourbon even than mm -hmm. copper and kings does um but i had to do that because otherwise you're just repeating yourself right right um and i did work there for a couple of years the apple brandy program was partially mine partially brandon o'daniels um it was the only thing that we fermented from the get-go ourselves as you guys probably know you know they bought they bought in low wines from different distilleries and redistilled those with a great brandy etc so used to joke with them that they should um market themselves as craft rectifiers instead of craft <laughs> distillers because no one would complain you're just being honest so yeah you know just somehow craft rectifier doesn't sound quite as sexy as craft distiller um nonetheless so my background i come from a family of distillers um really both sides of my family on my mom's side and my dad's side my family are all from kentucky um mostly eastern kentucky around the oneida manchester area um down in clay county on my mom's side and on my dad's side around Greensburg, Hodgensville, uh, Green County, Hart County, et cetera, on my dad's side. So my um, my grandparents on dad's side, they came up here in the 40s and bought a farm in Pekin, Indiana and started raising tobacco. And my grandpa made moonshine on the side. And so I grew up doing that. I grew up around stills, et cetera. So when I was like three or four years old, I remember seeing stills being around them. I didn't think anything odd about it because to me, it was just another piece of farm equipment. It was another reason why we couldn't go do things as a family on the weekend other than actually distilling. <laughs> and what we were doing is we were, we were making enough money to be able to pay property taxes and then to pay for Christmas. Or if somebody needed some help in some way, shape or form, if somebody was running short on money, we had some money that we could give them. We could help them out however we could. Um, on the Bishop side, I don't know how deep those distillation roots go. I've never been able to prove anything, uh, one shape, form, or the other, but I suspect that my great-grandfather at least was distilling because there's some things that have led me in the direction of believing that. Uh, on the Wilson side, the Bargers in particular, on my mom's side, they actually moved up here from Clay County, Kentucky in the 19, late 19, yeah, take it back, probably 1960s is when they moved up here. Uh, and they moved up here because my great-grandfather was a massive distiller and bootlegger in Clay County, Kentucky, an area around Jack's Creek. Um, and more or less, he'd had enough run-ins run with the sheriff that at one point in time, the sheriff came to his house and he said, the next time we come out here, one of us isn't leaving the situation alive. Ooh. And so they ran him out of Kentucky. They ended up up here around Salem, Indiana, uh, where he built chicken barns as his cover <laughs> and use those as a still houses, basically. So um, I got kind of tangentially interested in distilling when I was around 15 years old for the obvious reasons. And I'm not not uh, sort of trying to justify that in any way, shape or form. But mom and dad knew growing up in a rural community, I was going to find stuff. So if I was going to do anything, it had to happen at home where they could keep an eye on me. And dad and grandpa basically helped me build a little 10 gallon pot still out of an antique stainless steel coffee dispenser from Fort Knox, Kentucky 
literally took like a whole bag of flour dough to seal this thing up. It looked like you were baking a cake every yeah. time you fucking ran it. <laughs> um, and then they gave me two rules. And the two rules were don't blow your, blow your ass up in the backyard when you're distilling and bring us something when it's worth drinking. But then they refused to tell me how to do anything. Now, I knew the things I'd seen them do when I was growing up. They did a lot of sugar shine, which is basically one pound per gallon of sugar, one pound per gallon of grain. Uh, and we did a lot of fruit brandies, which was usually two pounds per gallon of, of fruit, one pound per gallon of sugar. Um, and really, the only reason they did fruit brandies because everybody around southern Indiana has got a fruit tree in their yard and they don't sure. use it for anything. But they also want to mow around it. It's a great way to get stung by every insect in the state of Indiana. <laughs> yes. You get to know them very well. Yeah. <laughs> so brandy's always been kind of part of my life. And then in my late 20s, I converted the old tobacco farm into an organic produce farm. Uh, really focusing on plant breeding, trying to come up with open pollinated varieties for sustainable farming in southern Indiana. There's no money in that whatsoever at all. I don't know how I ever thought that there would be any money in it. So that led me into thinking, well, if you can't sell this stuff, what happens when you run it through a still? Distilling, people forget this, is inherently agricultural. That's why Indiana was a distilling state, just like Illinois was a distilling state. Ohio, Pennsylvania, it's all related to the agriculture and what you have on hand at that place. So by the time I was in my late 20s, I had 150-gallon pot still that was made out of an old milk stirator tank literally setting out in the open in my parents' backyard. <laughs> um, my now wife was basically like, you got to go find a job doing this or I'm, I'm out. You know, we were, we'd go to parties and stuff, and jars would come back around to me at parties from people that I didn't know, and they knew that I distilled it. And this was at the same time that, you know, moonshiners and all that stuff was kind of getting popular. So people come up and ask for an autograph on a mason jar. I'd be like, I don't know who the fuck you are or how you even know <laughs> where this came from, right? Autograph and mason oh, jar. Oh, man, it was a whole thing. I, I, but I used to joke around about it, too, because, you know, the, the old saying is you got to know a guy that knows a guy. So I made these business cards that said that. And then I had the greatest cell phone number of all time. So it was uh, the last digits were 7115. So you could advertise and say things like it's like a 7-Eleven with five items. That's how, you, <laughs> that's how you memorize it, right? Nice. <clears throat> and then I was working at the... Uh, I don't think I ever told this part on a podcast before, but I'll tell it now. <laughs> at that time, I was working at a gas station in Pekin. And if you ever want to know anything that's going on in like a small town, go work at the gas station. <laughs> and I'm not talking about like the nice gas station. Find the one that's questionable, that's you're, highly suspect. You're scared to go to. Yes. You need to go to. Could right. be a laundering front. It, yes. Yeah. And you will learn everyone's business real quick. And you'll also learn who can help you move the things that you have. You can also tell every time that it's uh, it's harvest day during marijuana season because suddenly everyone smells like weed walking in. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I did a lot of bootlegging in that situation. So um, eventually my wife's like, you got to go get a job doing this. And at the time, Indiana hadn't opened up their distilling laws uh, to allow for craft distilling. They were talking about it, but there was a certain state legislator uh, that didn't want anything to do with it. He actually called it the still on every hill bill. Um, <laughs> And he had made it such that the way the regs read, you had to either have your winery or your brewery license for three years and have it active uh, in order to even be considered for a craft distilling permit or an artisan distilling permit. Um, and his argument was that basically these people who own craft wineries or craft breweries have shown they're responsible with alcohol. And my argument back to him, because at the time I had some investors, was what you're really saying is that it's okay to sell everyone else's alcohol, just don't sell your own, because I can go buy a liquor store right now and I don't have to have any experience. Yeah. Of course, he yeah. didn't like that very much. Um, so I started putting in applications in Louisville, Kentucky. Every time I saw a craft distillery opening up, I put in an application, made the world's worst resume 
that you've ever seen. It literally like talked about, you know, home distilling and all that stuff because I didn't know, I didn't have anything, you know, yeah. I didn't know anybody in the industry other than I knew Steve Beam and Lisa Wicker. They both helped me very, very much so to get into the industry, but I didn't have anybody where I could be like, oh, I spent, you know, three years working under Jimmy Russell because he knows, you know, my dad's cousin or something, <laughs> you know? So they were literally the worst resumes that you've ever seen in your my life. My middle name might be Beam. Right. Could be. <laughs> could be. You know, I was, that was the first thing I was always put on something was like, nose Steve Beam from Limestone Branch, yeah. right? Because the name Beam, underlined it twice and circled it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Copper and Kings hired me, probably not because I was the best distiller for the job, but because I was certainly the cheapest distiller for the job. Um, it really, honestly, I, I love the idea of being a brandy distiller, especially in bourbon country and kind of being up against the wall with that stuff and trying to change people's minds on what brandy is. Because at the time, brandy was considered, you know, cheap and sweetened and not good. And we were the exact opposite of that. So I love that mentality, but I didn't care much for the ownership. And um, honestly, I need to get, I didn't, Nothing wrong with Louisville. I don't want to work there and I don't want to live there. Right. I just, I needed to get back over here on this side of the river. Yeah. I knew that distilling history and I wanted to lean into it as hard as what I could. So I was there at Copper and Kings for about two years <clears throat> and uh, was looking for a job when the Dodies found me through Lisa Wicker and Ted Huber and a couple other people and called me. And I was literally, I was driving back from somewhere in Eastern Kentucky from picking up grapes for Copper and Kings. And when they called, I think I said yes to the job before they even told me how much they were going to pay me or anything. I was like, <laughs> fuck this. I got to get out of here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, just, I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't. I couldn't. I, there was a certain mentality about Copper and Kings and especially the ownership at the time. And this is nothing that's a secret to anybody who knows me or has heard me talk, but I could not deal with them. And I had to get the fuck out of there because I was going to lose it on them. So um, it came at the exact right time. And that was in November of 2015. Um, so just shortly after after my daughter was born as it were so it was literally it was kind of a i was very thankful to get that job yeah that's awesome that's quite the story too it's going from uh working at a gas station to be yeah. a distiller yeah yeah and, selling uh, produce at the, the farmer's things. market yeah. And, yeah and the gas station also figured out if you want to make money at the farmer's market you just had to figure out how to bootleg moonshine out of the back of your truck because you get to know everybody in small town you're like i know that guy drinks this is <laughs> clarified tomato juice that's yes. right yes so uh justin what were you doing before you were here my story is not as romantic and it's more ambitious though it is more ambitious um so i was a paramedic and a firefighter um uh, i'd worked in ems since 2008 uh, that's actually how my wife and i met um, we had worked together for, I, since we know each other, we met in 2013. Um, and I had got on the fire department in 2017. That was my dream, jo dream job. That's what I wanted to do. I had worked towards that I, since 2007 when I got out of high school. That's what I wanted to do. Um, unfortunately, in Indiana, there are very few career fire departments. So I had done some volunteer work while working in EMS. I worked multiple EMS jobs at the same time. That's kind of the way EMS is, unfortunately. It's, it's finally catching up to decent pay, but at, when I first started, like I was literally making six or whatever minimum wage was plus 10 cents pretty much. Um, Goodness. To be a, a non-driving EMT, which is somebody that wasn't old enough to drive, uh, but I could be in the back with the people. 
And so that's where I started out at. Um, I worked my way up from an EMT to a, what's called, uh, it's not even a certification anymore, an intermediate EMT to where you could push some drugs, do some cardiology stuff and, and some more, more fun things, as I like to say. Uh, got my paramedic. Uh, I still hold my paramedic license and I will hold on to that probably until they won't let me anymore, just because it's something that's special to me. Something that I worked really hard to keep. Uh, but anyway, got, got on the fire department in 2017. Um, I really, really enjoyed working with the fire department. Um, I have nothing bad to say about any of the guys there um, or the chief or the department in and of itself. So you're doing better than me already. <coughs> I heard all <laughs> shit about the former owners of Copper No, I, I, I do. I, I loved the fire department, um, but going into it, I was expecting one thing, and it was a totally different thing. Plus, working through COVID, I will 100% say broke me. I will throw that out there. Um, EMS-wise, it was a bitch. Uh, working through COVID, just dealing with all of that. But then the fire department side was kind of completely the opposite. Like we went to a standstill on going on medical runs, stuff like that, because we were trying to stay safe, make sure that we could go out, put, put out fires and stuff we needed to do. Um, and it drove me insane. Like 100% sitting at station 24 hours a day, three days a week sucked. Um, but anyhow, like I said earlier, I went into, uh, I started doing some charity boxing. It's called Guns and Hoses in Evansville. If you've never been, I highly suggest you go. Um, I don't know if I will fight again next year. I really, really want to. I just don't know if I'm going to have time to put it in the training for it and stuff. Um, but I won my first two fights, lost my, my last fight that I was in. I blame Alan um, because he told half of a building. Um, have you all ever been to the Ford Center in Evansville? No. Well, half of it was full of cops, and Alan told them to suck it. <laughs> because, Absolutely. Because as I, you do. Yeah, because Alan walked out with me. <laughs> and he, he was dressed up as Dutty Rhodes, if, if anybody's familiar. If not, then I highly suggest you yeah. do a deep search and figure that out. But walks out and tells them to suck it. You told me to walk out with you. You didn't say that I couldn't tell the cops to tell you to suck. I think, um, I think with a guy like Alan, you just need to give him a little bit more parameters. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. But be then very specific. I proceeded to get my ass beat by a man that looked like a keg with abs. He did look like Brock Lesnar a little bit. Um, but... Anyhow, long story short, I like I said, I came in here and started hanging out with Alan. Um, I've always always had like a a weird wanting to learn things. Um, I've got a little bit of family history, not as much as Alan does. Uh, my uncle down south, who is no longer with us, he ran Shine, and I always wanted to kind of learn that because I always heard the stories from him and family and things like that. Um, I had gotten the chance to run a still with a good friend of mine down in Atlanta. Um, that was my first time running still. Alan's actually tried some of that. I don't even know if I have any of that left. If I do. Yeah. He um, told me it was terrible. Or it stuff it probably was. Um, <laughs> uh, you didn't get hired off your liquid resume. <laughs> I, I, hey, no shit. I, I took like 10 gallons of mead and drove it to Atlanta to run it on a still. <laughs> so it is what it is. Um, but I've always had this thing that I wanted to not only learn distillation, but I, you, you mentioned a Sazerac earlier. I'm I'm one of those people that it doesn't have to be served neat. Like, I love seeing what stuff does in cocktails. I love right. seeing what stuff does with food, with cigars. Um, I, I, I love seeing how stuff is built from the ground up. And to me, that's the, the grain that goes into stuff or the fruit, mm -hmm. the fermentation process, the things that you can do in that fermentation process to stress that yeast out, to make it do some weird, funky things. Then after the distillation process is done, because as I tell people on the tour, like the distillation process is the one thing that you really can't control because it, it's, the still is going to do what it's going to do. 
And then after that, the maturation process, what the barrels are going to do based on where they're at, where they're made, the seasons that it goes through. It just, all that stuff amazes me. In Don't worry itself. about your shirt there. If, if, we, we show titties on here. Yeah, my yeah. titty popped out all of its own. Yeah. Yeah. Your titty was all the way yeah. out? Yeah. He's a busty guy. What are you going to do? <laughs> Let's take a moment to hear from our partners. Is your closet starting to feel a little weak? You know, like shoddy fabrics, misshaped, tired designs? Then Seven Strong brand has exactly what you need to reinforce your look. We're talking a four-way stretch of polyester, cotton blend, silky smooth, breathable, and above all, true to fit while keeping its fit. No? But what about our hidden collar button with reinforced stretching? It's pretty strong. Or how about designs that'll get you a standing ovation no matter the occasion? Happy hours to baby showers, the flight to date night, even from the shore to stepping out to the store. Seven Strong brand has button-down shirts that will transition you from one place to the next and make you stand out every single time. And for listening to our show, new customers get $5 off their first purchase with code FINALTHIRD. Not to mention, all orders over $50 qualify for free shipping. And you know, just like any label on a bottle or cigar, these shirts are going to be a stamp of quality every time you wear them. So find your strength and style by checking out 7-strong.com, as well as following 7-strong brand on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Our wonderful new table is brought to you by Deadwood Live. That's D-E-D, Wood Live. Go check them out on Facebook and see what Derek can do for you. From bars to tabletops to a giant podcast table, they specialize in making super high quality furniture from live edge woods and reused barrels. So reach out to them on Facebook and see what they can do for you. The funny thing That's about cool, man. funny thing about Justin was he when so he mentioned the the thing about the single barrel that went to Texas. So yeah. <laughs> He was, he was on TikTok, and he had a TikTok account, and he had a following on there, and it was a different following than what I normally have. And I came to find find out about him because we sent a barrel of what we call the Lost River Bourbon down to Texas to um, Liquor King, who we do a lot of business with. We have a huge following down there around Dallas-Fort Worth area. And uh, they were the first place to get this barrel. Well, we named it after the river here outside of town, Lost River. And it had a nice label on it, you know, the illustration, everything that our artist does. Had the story to go along with it, and... So I hear through the grapevine from somebody up in the front office, like oh, this guy came in and he was, he was like super pissed that there wasn't a lost river available here and that it was in Texas and it should be in <laughs> Indiana first and it shouldn't be in Texas. And then somebody sent me the video where he was talking about it and I'd never met Justin. I walked back up front and I'm like, fuck this guy. We're never releasing lost <laughs> river in Indiana ever. Hey, it's going to Texas just only. Because from of now him. On. Yeah. Did I get a bottle? You did get a bottle. I so, got a bottle from but that, Texas. See, and that's that's the point. <laughs> that's the Texas. Fun of it. you got to drop yeah. weird stuff in weird places and see I agree. who goes to find 100%. it. 100%. Right? Yeah. So we're dropping weird, getting ready to drop weird stuff in Canada here shortly just to see who will drive up there and go get it. But long and short of it is. I'm not going to Canada. Justin, <laughs> Justin comes in. It's the rush part of Canada. It's the rush province, not the Nickelback province. So it's okay. So Justin comes in and he does a tour, him and Tiff, and we do a tour and he starts, you know, messaging, hey, sometime can I come hang out for a day? I'm like, yeah, sure, you can come hang out, whatever. So he just starts showing up like one or two days a week, right? This goes on for months and he's doing work. Like I he goes, Can I do anything? And I'm like, you can go do this, 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 and this. And one day the owners are like, So are we gonna hire this guy or <laughs> 
And I'm like, I don't know. He's working for free right now. I don't see the fucking problem. (laughs) (laughs) He's just happy to be here. Right? (laughs) I needed something to do on my days off. Yeah. Yeah, So uh, we just poured the next barrel. Um, Did we ever figure out what type of red wine this was? I did figure this out. Okay. So what this is, I don't know if you guys are familiar or not, but the very first thing that we ever did that really kind of caught on after the Lee Sinclair two-year-old, the first real single barrels we did, and it was it was a single barrel because we ended up mingling two barrels is what we did. This is the second of those barrels, but it was unpretentious, which was a rye whiskey finished in a pork cask. Oh. This was a port cask that then had two-year-old rye whiskey put into it, and that's what characteristics that we're pulling off of this is that port and that rye wow. characteristic. Wow, okay. Um, it it took, definitely has the port characteristics yeah. in it. It took him pulling the barrels out and having them in the H3 room for me to look at them and then like trigger that memory. Oh, I know exactly what that is. And the funny thing is, so unpretentious was, uh, for anybody that's followed us, that was like the first one that sort of like, caught on in the underground and it was very much so because i made a joke about it because everybody was doing port barrel Mm -hmm. and i typically am not huge on doing port barrel finishes so our sales guy had had this place in indianapolis that wanted a port barrel finish because he ran out of i think they were doing a jefferson's port barrel finish of some kind and they couldn't get it anymore and so we did this barrel i did it begrudgingly i was like don't ask me to do it again sean it's not going anywhere else well then COVID hit and or it was right before COVID, and the guy backed out of buying the barrel. So we released it, and when we released that, I started making all these social media posts about how there were only so many bottles of it. And then I was kind of, I was joking, and I was saying, it's already selling on the secondary market for $500 a bottle. And then I'd wait a couple hours, and I'd post something else. I'd be like, it's now going for like $750 a bottle. <laughs> well, people started falling for it. You created the market. Yes, and then we started getting phone calls, and people would come out front at the time, to come get a tasting of it, and they were literally saying, "Well, I heard this was fifty dollars a pour." I mean, it t- it turned into a thing like that. There's still <laughs> a few awesome. bottles floating around. You'll see it every once oh in a while goodness. on the secondary for a couple hundred dollars. And I was like, it was it was all a joke because yeah. I fucking hated the idea of doing a port finished thing because everyone else does it. But it turned into a thing, and that it tells it you, man, marketing sells. Yeah, you know what else Big sells? Time. I, I hope that one day on secondary, I see one of them bottles for a couple thousand dollars because as long as I'm involved, there'll never be another port barrel finish anything yeah. in this distillery. So That's wild. Well, and what got me started on your your brandy was the um, tequila barrel finish. No, not the tequila barrel. That's one I tried here with him. It was the um, the Isla Scotch. <laughs> yeah, apple. it's yeah. so yeah. good. It is, it is super oh good. Oh, my gosh. Oh, and, and actually... You guys were gracious enough, or, or I shouldn't say you guys. You guys suck. The, the girls up front were gracious enough to find a bottle when I was here last time that she sold it to me. It was like one of the last two that were on your on the winery side's yeah, desk. Right. I bought that one. Now that's one of those bottles that as soon as I got back, I cracked it because I'm like, you gotta drink oh, yeah. that. Oh yeah. There's no sitting that one for secondary. I killed a <laughs> bottle of that, and that was it was almost a hazmat. It was one thirty something. One thirty seven or seven. Yeah, thirty seven seven. I almost killed a bottle of that in two days back in January, and it about killed me. I bet. I remember sitting in here or sitting in the H three room and being like, it was like one o'clock in the afternoon. I was like, I I'm, I can't do this. I <laughs> which I which speaking here. of proof, yeah. 147.9. Yep. Yeah. As far as I know, oh my gosh. we are the only distillery really doing hazmat apple brandies. 
And you're the only one I've seen. I've never seen it. It, yeah. it started on accident. We had the NES group. If you guys aren't familiar with them, they do um, they do all like crazy wax and like bottle toppers and stuff. They came in here and they wanted to do an apple brandy barrel, and they pulled a tequila, uh, an apple brandy and matured in tequila barrel down, and that's what they wanted. But they only wanted half of it. And I was like, well, we gotta sell the other half. Well, they wanted a hazmat, and I'm like, okay. And I'm thinking, I got to bottle all this at one time. I'm like, we'll never sell a hazmat apple brandy, especially <laughs> not one that was completely matured in a tequila barrel. And uh, I'll be damned, though, if it didn't sell out that weekend. It was, our half of it was gone. And I was like, well, I guess people like hazmat apple brandy. And I actually just... remember you talking about that one mm -hmm. on an Instagram live. And I was like, huh, I'm intrigued enough to yeah. think about going down there. I never did. Well, um, we, but... we kind of talked about it after the, after the pick and during the pick. You know, the reason we picked these two was because we felt like these were two totally unique, totally mm -hmm. different yeah. brandies. Um, but they're also easy ones, I think, that we can pull people into to try them. If we were to pull the tequila one, now we've got tequila and brandy, two different things that right. are very polarizing in some yeah. of the circles. And, like, after they try these, mm -hmm. I definitely want to get one of your tequila barrels because that's, that's special. This one, the interesting thing for me on this They're one, I, I don't know if you guys caught, catch it on the front of it. So this one has got sort of our signature house note that a lot of our bourbons have, which is that eucalyptus or sort of uh, whorehound candy sort of note. Oh, yeah. And then it also has a little bit of that red wine, but there's a lot of that Solomon Scott rye whiskey character yeah. setting on this. I think that's what was throwing me yeah. off. It's So it's, it's the rye in port where I was thinking like a dry red, like a cab. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. it gives you that kind of drying feeling mm -hmm. on your tongue a little bit. The other that makes thing, sense with the rye and the port together. The other thing I'm getting on this is like a really, really dark chocolate note. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that. It, if it were a legitimate chocolate bar, it'd be bitter. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that same chocolate. sort of fruity characteristic. It, like a 70, yeah. 70%. Yeah. I'm curious, too, if you guys pick this up. And I'm really curious with Justin because I know he doesn't. this is not normally his his speed. And our Solomon Scott has it, and I love it for it. So I, I love herbal, and I love floral. This has got some of that floral, lavender, lavender stuff on the palates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I agree. It's like at the peak, though. Yep. Like, yep. You, you get it, and it's gone. And I yeah. think the the tannin, even, that was left over from that red wine, mm -hmm. I think kind of makes it a little more subdued, and it sort of blends everything together. Um this one drinks maybe a little more aggressively than the other one. Of course, it's a little higher proof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it doesn't drink like it's one forty-seven. Well, or, mm -mm. And this one is yeah. also so. This is four years and four months, where that one is five years. Five years. Yeah. So yeah. you got a little bit more time in the barrel. I will say, and I know how you feel about port barrel finished stuff. Mm. This is one of the the few things that I would say would hold up to a port barrel and not be overshadowed by the port. Yep. Yeah. So like the that high proof plus a little bit of astringency or as you say, phenolic stuff mm -hmm. from the apple kind of cuts through that port and it turns into, to me, like a, you know, like a, a plum skin is a little bitter, yeah. and a little drying that, or next to the, the actual pith or the seed of the plum. I get that from that port, but it's also sweet, which is port leaning also, but it's not sickeningly sweet. So. Now realizing the age difference, I didn't think about this while ago. There is another difference in these, and I told you guys wrong on the yeast on the first one. So this is straight up EC1118, or what they call Pradol de Mousse, which is the most common brandy yeast used on the face of the planet, most common wine yeast used on the face of the planet, too. And this is Vin 13. And that's probably where some of those overall aromatic differences are coming from mm -hmm. as well, is that difference in yeast. That's okay. real geeky distilling shit yeah. there. Oh, yeah. So... It, it, 
Now it's funny to me now hearing that it is a like an old rye barrel, just the fact that these two I loved because of well, because of the balance and because of the spice in there. I saw I saw your brain take over when he said rye because mm-hmm. oh. he is a he is a medicinal rye lover. Right. Oh. Yeah. And he, but rye period he loves. Mm-hmm. Somebody when I saw you, you say that. I saw him going. Oh hell yeah! Let's well, go. no, it just makes sense as to why I liked it so much. Yeah. But we does. tried this on the pick day with some chocolates that you guys oh, had on the table, yeah. and yeah. that was just a wonderful pairing, which tells me it's. It's a fantastic pairing for really dark cigars. Mm-hmm. I will say also for dark cigars, but also for someone that likes, you know, wine, but yeah. also does, doesn't mind higher proof whiskey. I think they'll love this because yeah. it's going to yep. give you a little bit of both going there. Also, I think people who are really into cigars with a with a lot of mouthfeel, really a, a creamy yes. cigar, both of these being pot still. They're super oily. I don't know if super you guys have noticed that. Yep. I mean, they're yeah, just, just completely the coating. Glass. And the other the other interesting thing about it is thinking of the fruit notes. So in the first one that we tried, it's much more that apple crisp thing. This is yeah. stewed apple. This is maybe even like fried, a little fried yeah. apple sort of characteristic. So yeah, I can see that totally fried apple that. with like a raspberry jam or mm-hmm. something like that. But on the top cool of thing it. is the like you were saying, the apple is still shining through. Right. Yeah. You don't you never lose the apple. And I'm I'm with you. It's like just like some of those um hard ciders where they they just keep on going with mm-hmm. it too long and it just loses all of its apple flavor it's just a dry mm-hmm. white wine well and even on the on the second one even though it was that rye barrel on that port the funny thing is i think that this would be one that you could put this in front of a um, a single malt drinker if there was somebody that liked the lowland stuff like the cardoos that have a little of that green apple character mm-hmm. if you blinded them they'd probably have a hard time figuring out that this was just straight up apple brandy mm-hmm. versus thinking it was some kind of crazy high proof cardoo or something of that nature totally. I, I think, think it, i think honestly either one of these now that we're in the world of finishing and stuff like that too mm-hmm. i think either one of these you throw these in front of a, a bourbon lover and don't tell them it's brandy yeah. Unless they can pull that apple note out mm-hmm. and think of what it is, they'll never know. Well, they I don't know. think there's a lot of high-proof bourbon drinkers that have ever had a brandy, brandy that's – I don't mean this in a bad way, but neither of these are pretty brandies. No. These are kind of hit you upside the head. Here's a ton of flavor. Here's a beautiful viscosity. Like It's like melted butter on the palate, which is – one of my favorite things to find when I'm on a barrel pick is just yeah. that super thick, creamy mouth feel. Um, these right. these are definitely right. And that's you definitely say? something that that we have talked about, and I know I've talked with Dirk about. Is like we want to get people educated on this kind of brandy because most people think of brandy, they think of that nasty E and J shit that's on mm-hmm. the shelf. Yeah, that, sweet what, and fifty cheap, proof nastiness. and super sweet and yeah. gross. Like people think of brandy as like this super sweet, you know, low proof, get the job done thing. Yeah. This is stuff you can get a bottle of it and enjoy it for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm excited to get people excited. That being about said, it. um, he said enjoy for a really long time, but one bottle of yours that I've enjoyed for a really short period of time <laughs> is the uh, it was the uh the Clifty. Yeah, the Clifty aged in the stout, stout beer barrels. Oh yeah. Dude, yeah. I have taken well, that bottle down so we, we are still touting the day that we were here with the barrel pick team because that barrel was completely full and there was one bottle left when our group left. Right? Is there <laughs> any in the gift shop right now? I don't. Yeah, know. I think Is we have it? some. Yeah, I think we have a few left you up there. You guys are closed today, though, weren't you? 
it, Justin can run a cash register. <laughs> Hell yeah, if, you, if you know how to run a cash Hell register, yeah. as long as you're paying with a card, we can get that yeah. figured out. Oh, no, right. we All can right. do that. That one was a fun one for us because those those stout barrels that we got in, they were um, they were full of banana ester. Um, which is not uh-huh. uncommon in stout, but it's it was uncommon in how bright that banana ester was. It was literally as though, you know, you're dealing with like bananas that had gone just the extra day where you either had to, you know, do something with them or throw them out. And I didn't know, honestly, if that was going to work with the Apple brand or not. And, and Justin didn't either. And it just it just so happened to work yeah. out OK. Yeah, it worked enough. out fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was excited about that one. And actually, um before you all leave, I've got something for you all to try because we just released the Morning Glory in a stout barrel. Yeah, we did barrel. the stout, same oh, stout. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. Filled the same day, but we released them at different times. Yeah, and that that our, the awesome. Morning Glory's already got that kind of peanut butter and chocolate thing mm-hmm. to it anyways. Oh, wow. The other thing I'll mention to you, to you Morning Glory is your favorite of the bourbons I that you hate. Morning Glory. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you remember that and I didn't have to say it. I, I don't, uh-uh. Nope. So, I okay. don't drink it. I don't want it. I, matter of fact, I What's still... What's the reason? Do you like the stout finish version of it, though? I like the stout barrel finish okay. version better than I do the original one. The okay. reason I don't like it is, 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 first of all, so I'm biased because it wasn't my idea, so mm. there's part of it. Um, the original owner, John Doty, he had a couple of ideas, and buckwheat was one of them, and let me tell you, buckwheat straight up in a bourbon does not work at all. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, you told us that last time we were here. Mm-hmm. So we figured out you have to toast it. You have to make kasha. And ironically, oh. I do like the flavor of kasha. I like it raw. But when we distill this stuff, and it doesn't matter if we're distilling it now or we were distilling it when we first started seven years ago, I don't like the flavor of it off the still at all. And I can't put my finger on what it is off the still that I don't like. But once it hits the barrel, the first three years to me, I'm just completely honest about all our products, it's trash the first three years. Somewhere around year three and a half, it becomes good trash. (laughs) And what I mean by that is for me, I know why people like it. I get why people like it. It has a little bit of a peanut butter and chocolate thing, but it, it's very much so Reese's Pieces. And I remember being a kid, and I remember being sick. I was like five years old. My mom had taken me to the doctor. I had a stomach bug or something. And for whatever reason, gave she gave me Reese's Pieces, and I <laughs> threw them up all over the back of that fucking car. And every time I taste the morning glory... Makes perfect sense. It man. just comes back to me. And so the bad thing is, like, when we do barrel picks in the morning glory, I'm like, don't ask me for tasting notes because I don't have anything good to say about it's vomit. This. All I taste right. is vomit and doctor's you, appointments. You, you, yeah. You're trying, if you're going to be a bourbon distiller in southern Indiana, you're in, in bourbon's backyard, right? You're trying, yeah. trying to get the attention of the bourbon drinkers, et cetera. Nothing we ever did ever got the attention of like the traditional bourbon drinkers because it's so off kilter. Now we got like Fred Minnick, loved Lee Sinclair, yeah. loved William Dalton, et cetera. And so I thought, well, we'll put out, you know, we had like 11 barrels of Morning Glory year one. We'll put that out. We won't do it. It won't sell at all. The fucking traditional bourbon drinkers wanted that. Mm-hmm. They went for that over everything else. And now even Fred Minnick, I was talking to him on the phone the other day. He goes, man, that Morning Glory, he goes, I absolutely love it. And it's funny because when he first tried it, I'll never forget this. I can't remember who he was on with, but he had a celebrity on and they were tasting through it. And he, he gets to the Morning Glory and he pours it and he tastes it and he goes, well, that's the least bad buckwheat bourbon I've ever had. And I was like, well, I'll take that shit. <laughs> <laughs> what a compliment. Awesome. Thanks, Fred. But now he apparently uh, he loves it. So, But good for him. More yeah. for everybody else because I ain't going to drink it. We had a couple questions come in um, to, to ask you and you as well um, if you want to weigh in on it. But uh, one of our regulars commented on the frequency and the amount of bourbon that's being produced across the board. 
do you guys think that there's just going to be a surplus in a couple years? Like, is basically the question is, is the bourbon boom dying? And do you think they're producing way too much currently? Uh, and it, maybe that could even be a sustainability question on the other end of that. Yeah. And well, it's, it's kind of a historical question, too, because this has happened before. It happened before Prohibition um, when everybody got way too big. Um, and when they got way too big, what happened was, and this wasn't just with bourbon, but with other spirits, too, you know, you had the whiskey trust move in and they would either put everyone else out of business by selling everything way cheaper than what anybody else could, or they would offer you money for your business and it would be bottom dollar. And if you didn't take it, that's fine. They'll just put you out of business anyways. Right. Um, I do think we're headed the same direction. Everybody has this sort of optimistic view of the bourbon bubble will never pop. It absolutely will. And here's why it will pop. I, I've, I feel like identified why it will pop. Everyone's getting way too big. And they're getting way too big because they're counting on foreign markets to open up. Specifically, they're counting on Japan. They're counting on China. China. They're yeah. counting on all of those foreign markets, even, even Russia up until recently, right? <clears throat> the problem with all those countries is they don't have replacement population. Right. You're not, no matter what you're selling to them right now, population is going to continue to diminish over the next 10, 20 years. When that market is not there for all this extra shit that you've made, you're going to dump it on the domestic market and you're going to sell it for whatever you can possibly sell it for. Right. They'll sink every craft distillery in the United States that is focused on bourbon if they want to, because they can, because they have the volume to do it. And they, whoever they is, the owners, et cetera, the multinationals don't care because there's always whatever the next boat is. I would be very cautious right now if I was brand new coming into this industry and starting a craft distillery, I would not be focused on bourbon at all. I think we lucked out. It was already crowded when we came in with Spirits of French Lick, but we were so off kilter, we could get away with it. Now the boundaries have been pushed far enough within within the bourbon landscape as far as what's out there and what's good. There's other craft distillers making really great stuff out there. I don't know, A, how you break into the market. B, once you break into the market, how do you keep a drinker? And C, if you break into the market and keep that drinker, if everything else goes to shit and they start dumping bourbon for nothing, and they will, it'll happen eventually, what do you do? You yeah. better be making some very differentiated spirits. And, and differentiated, I don't mean, you know, bourbon's a spectrum and it's about this wide. There's only so much room to play around within that spectrum to get those different flavors and get the attention. You know, I think that, that the days of being a mid-level distiller are over, or they will be soon. You're either going to be a great big, huge distillery, and maybe you make it through the bourbon bubble because you have other stuff, or you're going to be a little bitty small regional distillery. Right. That can yeah. do a little bit of everything. But anybody going into this right now, wanting to go into that mid-level where we are, you know, 15, 20 states, maybe even Canada, you're just asking to turn this thing over to the bank in seven or eight years yeah. is what you're asking wow. for. So so I kind of look at it like going into a going into a liquor store, not <clears throat> not like Walmart, anything like that, but a decent-sized liquor store, look at the – the bourbon aisle, right? It's saturated. There's no way around it. So kind of like Alan said, you're either going to have to grow, get huge, or stay very regionally small. Um, I would love to see somewhere do like uh, straight single barrels. And I think that keeps somebody afloat. But like the, the market is so saturated to where, like Alan said, it, it's going to pop eventually. And you're not going to have that, that bourbon craze that there is or that there has been here the past few years i think covid actually kind of helped with that it did 
um, because I, like myself, I got in, I liked bourbon prior to COVID, but I got into keeping bottles or building a collection yeah. during COVID. Oh, it, it kicked us up like two or three notches easily. But cigars and bourbon both. Yeah, absolutely. Way, yeah. And this is nothing against what Alan's done prior, but like, you know, the, we'll say the, the William Dalton, right? It's a, it's a weeded bourbon. There's nothing crazy about it. Is that going to hold on after, you know, this bubble pops? Right. Um, it's just, just to me, I, I think places are going to have to either do something different or do something crazy to kind of keep a hold of the market after that's done because there's not going to be that craze or that drive for it. Yeah. I'm also yeah, in, sure. incredibly biased about it too because that's one of the things that one of the owners of Copper and King said to me when I left was uh, – you know, none of none of this shit happened on the Indiana side, and no one cares about Indiana bourbon. Well, fuck you. I won a whole bunch of awards off Indiana bourbon, and I've done fine. Now I'm bored with it. Let's move on. Was that his yeah. real voice? That was his actual South African accent. Yes. But I definitely, I definitely see what you're saying though. Too is like, and, and maybe I'm, maybe I took this wrong, but what you're saying is, if you want to be a small craft distillery, regional, do something like craft breweries are. 90% yeah. of the craft breweries don't distribute across state lines. Right. If you want to be something like that in the distillery space, mm -hmm. the problem with that is you're waiting for four or five years for product. You're not producing beer, putting it in a bottle and selling it yeah. today. Functionality yeah. and cost. So that's where the yeah. the spirits you can put out a little quicker, like mm -hmm. the vodkas and stuff like that. That's why everyone has those. You have to. Well, I, I, get I, it. I think the trick is that – the thing that, that has never been realized with craft distilling yet that was realized with craft brewing, craft distilling has never been good about leaning into A, its history, and or B, its food shed. Craft brewing was really good about that, especially, you know, having sort of the farmer's market aesthetic that they played off of. Craft yeah. distilling has not touched that. Not yet. Maybe in True. New York a little bit, but nowhere else really, right? So finding those local regional profiles, you know, a four or five state thing, uh, that makes sense or a certain cultural sort of uh, aesthetic that people come to and that they understand using certain ingredients and, and doing things other than just vodka. So like instead of a vodka, looking at a, a something like a, a Russian style Samagon, which is really in a lot of ways a light white whiskey is what it mm -hmm. is, um, or looking at things like absinthe. And how do you Americanize absinthe? I mean, everybody and their brother has Americanized gin for the past 200 right. years. Yeah. Right. Nobody Americanized absinthe, right? Well, or, I, I know a guy. Yeah, right. <laughs> or, or looking at, um, you know, the, that's one thing I learned at Copper and Kings was uh, what market is well served and what market is served well. And when you find a market that's not well served and it's not and it's not served well, there's a gap in the market. Yeah. So where's the gap? So the gap could be this is this is an, just one example. The gap could be and it's it's a long road to get this on people's mind, but it comes and goes. And every year it gets a little closer. Aquavit. Mm -hmm. Everyone and their brother has a gin. You yeah. go to a good liquor store, maybe there's two two Aquavits total. Yeah, maybe a whole lot easier to get shelf space. And if you're competing against gin, you just say, you know, it's like gin, but here's what makes it different. Right. Here's a, a canned cocktail that's a Bloody Mary with Aquavit. Right. That's yeah. a, that's one of those one of those gaps in the market. God, I hope we're getting close to the end of the canned cocktails. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. I I, th I think it's just going to keep that way. Well, so. I think yeah. especially if the bourbon bubble pops, like Alan and Justin have kind of said that it will, which I also agree with mm -hmm. that, but. 
Right. Like you said, everybody's been so optimistic. Right. Oh, we're, we're just going to plateau and keep everybody. Yeah. You right. know, there's a certain point at where all these craft distilleries are pricing people out. I think about even some of the Indiana distilleries that are that haven't really changed their product much. Go ahead having, and throw them under the bus, Isaiah. It's I, fine. I'm not, I'm not going to do been that. Drinking. No, I'm not doing that. Whatever. I, but to? they haven't really changed their age statement, but like, maybe I, between. I, I normally would. <laughs> we, we normally do. Okay. So, <laughs> took only five seconds for Isaiah. Like, you know what? I'll say Whatever. It. So I, I think about <laughs> distilleries like Starlight. I love them. I've been a supporter of them for a long time. Sure. I think. They have leaned into the finishing craze a little bit too heavily. They flooded the market. And even in their gift shop, their their finished bottles went from 70 bucks, which was already on the high end for what I found value to be in those, to now $80, $85. And you're you're over there thinking, well, this hasn't even gained a half a year. This is still four, four and a half years stuff. Occasionally, you'll get a single barrel that's a five year before it went into a into a finishing barrel. So, where's the value in that? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of craft distilleries. Again, I love Starlight. I still drink their stuff. I just had a pour of a Starlight VDN finished bourbon the the other night. Do love their stuff. Some of them, I think, aren't going to be caught up. Or, or some of them might be sunk in the bourbon boom because of how they're trying to stretch out now. You said, uh, like, the local distilleries will stay around and the giants will stay around. Yeah. Well, if you're trying to grow past being just something regional or local, I would hate to be caught in the middle at that time when that happens. Yes. Yeah, you're either no, going to get absolutely. bought or you get dumped. Yes, one of the two. Or you, or, or you're gonna, yeah, you're gonna lose your ass. One hundred percent is yeah. the real problem, right? And then the, here's the other problem, because everybody who is a business person in this industry thinks that they're a super genius because they think, well, at the very least, if I lose my ass, I've still got all the value in the equipment and all the value in the whiskey. The whiskey's no longer worth anything when there's too much of it out there and you mm-hmm. can't market it. Right. And the equipment is already not necessarily always the best equipment in the world. And it's yeah, usually worn everybody's out. got equipment for sale at that exactly. point. Well, and uh, yeah. your whiskey might be worth something 10, 15 years down the line, like what happened with Stitzel Weller. Mm-hmm. But you're not going to be around to see that. No, and you're not going to be the one to get some money from it because, right. it's gonna, yeah, exactly. You, they're going to call in Getting all your pennies loans, on the barrel at that point. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's it's a scary market, and the only other, the only other way that I can see that people can pull off such a thing, like if you want to kind of be a mid level distiller on the smaller side of mid level, the only other way I see that people can pull that off is by being attached to some sort of tourist attraction, some whatever hmm. big dumb thing, right, that draws people into your state. If you're attached to that in some way or adjacent to it then you're probably okay, right? Which makes sense. So here is my business proposal. (laughs) Have you ever heard of Uranus Fudge Factory? (laughs) I have not. In Anderson, Indiana. Please don't. Please don't. Let's attach a distillery on there. Alan said it can grow to mid-size and still be good. Dude, literally you walk into the store and the first thing they say is, hold on. Welcome to Uranus Fudge Factory. How can we help you pack your fudge today? So what you're saying is Uranus can grow to mid-size and still be good? It can. Okay. That's exactly what I'm saying. Can we call our our new distillery? Licks. 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 Yes. 
That'll uh, probably get you in trouble coming from here, though. Does Does that mean that just down the road there's a produce stand called Gooch? <laughs> there probably should be. There should yes. be. Probably Did you know? Oh, no shit. There is <laughs> off subject. In Vincennes, there is a Verizon spit, store like that, like called the Gooch. The, the Gooch. I <laughs> shit you not. That was the joke. Whenever I went to college, was it was like. Oh, there's the gooch. Like the Nike. <laughs> is halfway through town. Yeah. Like the Nike just do it thing. Like just, just do, do, it. do just, just just spit on it. just spit on it. Lick the floor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that oh uh, that might be rough. So uh <laughs> <laughs> could be anyway. In other news. <laughs> so I did have a question for you too. So mm-hmm. um I mean when you and I sat and talked that first time I met you. Um, you had a lot of like you. You have a passion for the history in this area. Mm-hmm. Is there something we haven't shared yet that you're like, I want to get this out to people so they understand the history behind distillery? I know you talked about the number of distilleries in mm-hmm. Southern Indiana. Brandy was like the 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 bomb. Is there something out there that you would like to share? <clears throat> so I'm currently working on. Um, a documentary about Indiana distilling, both historically and in modern days with a uh, gentleman from IU for PBS. Okay. Um, and we think it might have wider distribution than that as well. Cause we brought it, we're starting to bring in some other bourbon personalities to talk about Indiana in particular. That's awesome. um, but he has visited a lot of the craft distilleries. He's doing some stuff on MGP. We're going to be taking a trip here shortly where I'm going to take him around to some of the old still sites in Southern Indiana and show him where those are at, where, people can kind of see what's left because of those 155, there's only three remaining standing buildings of those 155 and then the rest yeah. are all in ruins. Some are in absolutely beautiful areas. Um, and then hopefully be able to interview some people still yet that, you know, might be one or two generations removed from the distillers who were here back before prohibition. Uh, so that's something that's coming up. You guys can look forward to, cool. um, you know, I do a lot of, I do a lot of writing about Indiana's distilling history, or at least I used to at uh, the alchemist cabinet wordpress.com. Um, I've written a couple of books about sort of kind of autobiographical and then some of its history and then some of its like recipes for home distillers uh, that you can pick up at thealchemistcabinet.com. You know, we're constantly doing new shows about new distilleries. We just started a new Indiana Craft Distillers Guild that we're working on currently. Um, My podcast, Distillers Talk with Christy Atkinson, this fall, we're actually going to do an entire Indiana Distillers Guild series, which is like get to know the guild of Indiana Distillers. Oh, awesome. So That's awesome. That's awesome. It'll be Zachary Greedy from the Indiana Distillers Guild who's helping set all this up. And then we'll go through, we're going to try to get through all of the membership of the Indiana Distillers Guild on Distillers Talk, have them on, let them talk about their products and showcase themselves to everyone else. Um, so that's coming along here shortly. Um I mean, there's all kinds of stuff out there that I do. I do a thing called the One Piece of Time Distilling Institute on YouTube. Um, and that's literally trying to encourage home distillers to take the, the next step and go deeper into their craft and then eventually try to get legal somewhere, right? To encourage those little, small, fleet-footed distilleries to go do weird shit that people will enjoy. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. If I'm not distilling, I'm probably thinking about it or writing about it or bitching about it or <laughs> well i will say one, one thing if you guys there. don't follow um alan on instagram um it's the alchemist is that how it, they, uh, the uh, Al- yeah, maybe i don't remember who's your alchemist <laughs> I, I i follow you yeah. in all of them but one of the things you'll find out when you see him is he'll do some lives he'll talk about some crazy shit one of the crazy shits we're going to talk about here in a minute mm-hmm. which is amazing yeah. i'm excited about but um one of the things you'll find out about this guy is he is 
he has so many different things that he's into. And he, he I mean, he's into the occult. He's into the, all these different things and learning about, you know, what's, what's the name of the podcast? It's um, If You Have Ghosts, you, you, ghost, you Have Everything. Friend, you Have Everything. Yep. Um, that one. And the cool thing is, it seems like you, you kind of blend everything together because mm-hmm. it all kind of works together. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I was wondering about you is, like, have you ever done, went to some of these – old distillery sites and did the, you know, the ghost hunting kind of thing where, where I know you've done that a little mm-hmm. bit with some guests on your show and stuff. Have you ever done any of that to where you could kind of blend the two loves? Yeah. So t- to me, they're all related anyway. So it, whether it's agriculture, distillation, uh, music, um, history, look, at uh, he's getting into it already. All that stuff. It all, that's kind of my crossroads. So, I haven't done any any straight up just like ghost hunting to ghost hunt at, at distillery sites, but on if you have ghosts, you have everything. That is one thing that is one of our focuses is trying to have people on who have haunted distilleries. So I have this theory or this idea, I guess you'd say, that uh, distilled spirits, obviously the name distilled spirits comes from the idea of capturing the quintessence, the, the essential alchemy of what a thing sure. is. Yeah. Uh, and spirits are distilled spirits are a doorway into another world. Uh, they open your mind up in a way that makes you vulnerable, that can help you out or it can hinder you. It's a gift and a curse at the same time. And I have this tendency to believe that the reason there are so many stories related to haunted distilleries, even on new sites, is because whatever spirits, whether they are human or they were never human, understand that there's power in distilled spirits and they connect themselves to those places and therefore to people who imbibe in those spirits uh, because they're a little more vulnerable or a little bit more open uh, to the ability to interact with people that have been affected in a, a psychological way by drinking distilled spirits, as it were. Huh. Um, so that's very much so a part of, of what I do. When I mentioned the, the necromancy thing earlier as a joke, you know, uh, one of the characters we have is Maddie Gladden, who was literally a madam who owned a, uh, a brothel in Salem, Indiana. Um, again, no one in New Orleans had ever heard her name. Even if they'd been to Salem, Indiana, they never heard her name. If you were in New Orleans and you came into French Lick, you'd have heard Lee Sinclair's name. No one outside of Salem, Indiana knew who Maddie Gladden was until we released that bottle. And now there are people in Texas and New Orleans and Canada and South Carolina and everywhere that know her name. And by telling her story and speaking her story, she still exists. It's a, it's a type of immortality. Her her quintessence, her spirit, is tied directly to that spirit, and therefore she still exists. Huh. So for me, all of those things are all greatly interwoven into one another. So, yeah. So That's speaking of uh, distilleries, another thing that people, that the people, our the regulars, people. Uh, wanted to know is who are some of the distilleries that that you guys are enjoying or keeping uh, keeping an eye on. Uh, these don't have to be craft distilleries. They could be the big six in Kentucky or, uh, or whatever, you know, they get enough attention. He's a, <laughs> is this maker's is Mark. He's a big maker's guy. Maker's 46. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's called Lushing. Okay. Well, I want to talk about that in a minute. I'll, we'll do that in a minute. So, um, I love Iron Root Republic. That's that's one that I absolutely love down in Denison, Texas. Let's uh, go, Texas. Yeah. Uh, We're big Texas whiskey fans. Kind of like, yeah. Those, yeah. They're those, doing some magic things down yeah. there. Those guys have cost me to lo- caused me to lose a couple of Sundays, for sure. Um, <laughs> but I love what they do. I like Wood Hat Spirits out in, out in Missouri. Oh, yeah. uh, we love Wood Hat. Gary's, Gary's a great guy. He's Gary's a fantastic a guy. Yeah. Um, 
you know, in Indiana, there are several as well that I'm interested in. I think Jason Fruits up at Old 55 does some really interesting things. Mm-hmm. You know, I think uh, uh, Brian at Hard Truth, I think taking the, the route towards focusing on rye was a, was a pretty brave one. Um, I also think, of course, you know, the Hubers, um, there's no – there's no taking away what they've contributed to Indiana distillation over the years for sure. Um, as far as other craft distillers, I'm really interested in. So it's mostly people that are really just pushing the boundaries. Anybody that's doing something weird, but they're doing it really well. I'm very, very interested in, um, and I'll support anybody that does anything like that or anybody who has an interesting, legitimate story. One thing I am tired of, like if I never have to store, hear the story again of like my grandpa, was moonshiner oh had a God. secret fucking recipe go fuck off yeah no one wants to hear it no one cares right and part of my story is that <laughs> but you guys asked the background but i've never used that for marketing i've never used it for a product but also your grandpa made sugar shine primarily right. we, we also have a little thing that we like to talk about too <laughs> so there, there's a little thing that every time you go to a distillery first we're the first one to ever do this yes. first one to ever do and this. i'm like are you really? I'll, I'll throw uh, <laughs> Jason under the bus on this one. He w- he'll tell you he's the first one to ever do a hundred percent sweet corn whiskey. It's just not true. It's just not. No, it's not it's, true. It's not. I mean, Gary's doing it in uh, at Wood Hat. Yeah, which actually the- his is fantastic. Oh, we tried it at uh, just around a year, I think it was. It was a, it was less than a year. It was okay, like eight or ten or eleven months. And Whatever. It was already delicious. Fantastic. Like, okay. Gary know knows Gary. how to treat his grain. Yes. Yeah. Bill Hockett over at uh, Dayton Barrel Works as well. He does a sweet corn whiskey. Um, and and honestly, if anybody was to get, I wouldn't say he would be the first, but if anybody was going to get the credit for like really pushing the boundary on that, it should be Bill because he, um, Bill is the only person that I've ever seen any evidence whatsoever actually worked as a still hand for popcorn Sutton. And when I say worked as a still hand, he actually worked directly with popcorn Sutton. Uh, And he based his sweet corn whiskey directly on what popcorn Sutton was doing. Um, Instead of being dried down sweet corn, it was just straight up sweet corn, uh, cut right off the cob, sour mashed it the old fashioned way several times over and over again and went into a new oak barrel. And it's, it's fantastic. Um, Bill's also one of the most knowledgeable distillers in the industry out there. Um, and I and I do love what Jason does as well. Yeah. I am. Um, he knows this. I'm not a big fan of the sweet corn whiskey, but I don't think he is either. His wheat bourbon, though, pretty fucking on par. That stuff yeah. is it pretty is good. impressive. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it it differs crazily, very like barrel to barrel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, the other person that's doing it that we that we got put onto was Whiskey Acres out of Illinois. I've heard of them, but I've not ever had a chance to try any of their stuff. They, they don't like, distribute um, to Indiana yet. quite yet. But uh, one of our friends, Eric Jansen, so shout, shout out, out to him. Um, he's a friend. Of, outs, he's a friend of the shop. Us to drink more. Yeah, right. Sir. Fair enough. Um, he's he's a friend of the shop. He introduced us to them because he comes from a farming family in Illinois and uh, really resonates with the brand there but and all the stuff i've had from them has been really good okay so we're going to talk about what we're about to drink yes and then justin i want to hear from you okay like who your favorite distillers are who you're drinking right now well, so of just the just guy, the right of him this is his favorite. Yeah, this guy. <laughs> um so but, let, first, first, let's get yeah. This. Firstly, it's so what are we doing here? Firstly, what are we drinking? Also, it's what did close. you do to yours? So let let's yeah. let Alan describe this. 
think you might went a little too far, but see, we'll it looks, see. It, it, it looks could, a little bit too clear. I like it. Be a little more gray. So what you have here is a sample of, um, as I said, absinthe is my passion. We were kind of talking about the uh, the esoteric and the occult. Absinthe for me is very much so um, sort of a spiritual pursuit. So this is a a true, heavily influenced by the Val Dietrichers, very heavy botanical influenced absinthe. And what I mean by that is. Absinthe is the one botanical spirit that can actually trace its ancestry back to uh, botanically influenced wines going as far back as uh, Salerno, Italy in the 1300s, uh, but specifically into the Val di Travers in Switzerland in the 1600s and 1700s, where you're dealing with almost as much plant material as you are actual alcohol and trying to absolutely extract all the oils from the plant material, not only for uh, the sake of being able to taste those plant materials, uh, but also, and this is not a popular opinion, and I should say first and foremost that I'm not representing Spirits of French Lick when I say this, for medicinal reasons. There should be a category of alcohol, whether people like it or not, and whether or not the U.S. government likes it or not, that's called functional alcohol, and I don't mm -hmm. mean functional alcoholic. I mean alcohol that actually has physiological effects that are for the positive, such as for digestion, etc., anxiety. Oh. Um, absinthe is one of the very few spirits that actually has that. As a matter of fact, when you smell absinthe, it activates the part of your brain that recognizes food, not the part that recognizes alcohol. Um, it, most of the botanicals that are in absinthe, such as grand wormwood, fennel, anise, um, even basil, uh, a little bit of licorice root, etc. They all help settle the stomach. They all help with gastrointestinal problems, etc. Wormwood is literally called wormwood because it can get rid of worms. Um, and that's what it was used for for many, many, many years. Um, and it's one of those things that has a, a mystery around it, a mystique around it for all the wrong reasons. There's all these ideas <laughs> that absinthe will make you hallucinate. Uh, there's all the romanticism that comes with it. You know, most people, their first experience with anything to do with absinthe is either watching like Bram Stoker's Dracula <laughs> and seeing it on there or Green seeing it in Nine Inch Nails, mm -hmm. The Perfect Drug video. Oh, yeah. This idea of hallucinations, et cetera, that was never the case with absinthe. It was made illegal because of that, but specifically because the wine industry wanted to get rid of it in yep. order to Which there are, uh, there are regulations mm -hmm. on it now with how much wormwood and stuff you can get in it, aren't there? So there are, it turns out then Ted Bro was the one who was responsible for figuring this out from Jade Absinthe, also another distiller that I absolutely adore. And Ted does wonderful uh, recreations of Victorian era um, absence from uh, France in particular, but they had outlawed it and banned it in many countries in the world because they thought it was a hallucinogen. And specifically, yeah. they thought that alpha thujone, which is a component of grand wormwood, was a hallucinogen. It isn't. Um, you're going to find more alpha thujone in a little vial of sage oil than you'll find in any <laughs> pre prohibition or pre banned bottle of absinthe. Um, it can be. What is the word I'm looking for? It can cause spasms and things of that nature in high dosages, but you're talking, you you die of alcohol poisoning before yeah, you ever got yeah, to that yeah, point. Yeah, totally. So there is a sort of arbitrary um, amount of alpha thujone that the FDA recognizes as safe and subsequently the TTB sort of controls as being safe, but it really has nothing to do with safety. And I'm hoping to see that changed because uh, we're we're about 20% below what they actually allow in, in the European Union, unfortunately. So it's very hard to make a true, real American absinthe that's legal at this point. So here what I, here's what I think is weird about that. So the European Uni Union is always big on safety of food, mm -hmm. safety of drink. 
you know, allowing certain things, not allowing certain things, but that we can use more wormwood there. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the United States, it's like, ah, fuck the food, fuck well, the drink, who cares? And I suspect it's because they have a longer history with those particular plants in Europe than what we have here. Right? Well, uh, but you out. also think, like, one of the things that's taught in high school history classes is the Salem witch trials. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think that just give that starts with giving absinthe a bad name. It yeah. does, and there's there's an association between absinthe and, and what you would, would have thought of as like a granny witch or uh, uh, you know someone who, who is a, a folk healer, et cetera. They're definitely, that association is certainly there. You also have to understand that absinthe originates at a time in the Swiss Alps in particular, where the Swiss Alps for a long time was the last real democratic stronghold in Europe. Uh, where women still had rights. And then once the Catholic Church moves in, those rights start to disappear. And so, for example, if you were uh, a, a distillator or liquorist, uh, I probably didn't say that right, but uh, a female distiller in particular, and you had a, a method for manufacturing absinthe or whatever else that you were making, uh, they literally made it illegal unless you had a pharmacy license in order to sell or market or make that stuff. Um, and you couldn't have a pharmacy license unless you were a male. So they immediately pushed a lot of these women off to the fringes and made them no longer a part of the story. And so I think there is a a certain witchiness, as it were, around absinthe for sure. Now, the other thing, even though it's not a hallucinogen, one thing I will tell you about it, other than it being a functional medicine in, in a lot of ways, is that this of all of the spiritist drinks that are out there has more to do with alchemy than anything else does. This much more resembles what alchemists were doing. The idea of the philosopher's stone, the idea of personal transformation, the idea of of having to pay attention and put intent into what you're doing in life. Mm -hmm. This is exactly what absinthe is. And so my passion really is Ted bro from Jade is already making great Parisian style absinthe. I don't need to do that. I don't necessarily need to make need to make a verde absinthe, although I do sometimes make a verde absinthe. Um, I'm much more interested in how do you Americanize absinthe, but you keep it legitimate to the traditions of the Val de Traverse. So I've done that by using different colorants over the years and different ingredients that are very Americanized. Uh, sometimes I'll use things like a honeysuckle, or for example, I make a, a yellow orange absinthe, which is you, we're using marigold petals uh, for that. I make a Ooh. purple absinthe where I'm using a purple corn. This was a go at a what was originally going to be a dark purple, and this was darker the other day because they're not always completely stable. But this is what I'm calling a black absinthe. Yeah. Um, I won't tell you how it was colored. I will tell you that it does affect the aroma as well as the taste as well. I agree. There are about 14 botanicals in here, and this was literally as many solids, if not more, than there were liquid in the still. So you're talking for one gallon of base alcohol that you're macerating. You're talking 120 grams of grand wormwood. You're talking 250 grams of fennel, 250 grams of anise. Um, some of the heavier components might have been things like uh, a little bit of um, uh, licorice root, maybe around 10 to 15 grams of licorice root. Uh, there's a little bit of basil in there. There's lemon balm at about 20 grams per gallon. You're literally. Did you do black pepper? Nope. Nope. No. Nope. It's. Nope. 
I don't get the black pepper. It's fantastic. Oh. So there is a savory note when this is neat. Yeah. And this, now, to be honest with you, this is 140 proof as it is without loosening it down. Mm-hmm. God uh, bless you. Yeah. <laughs> so it's you'll, fantastic. You'll oh, notice I love it. There's a floral note on the nose. That's the wormwood. And that was wormwood that I grew in my backyard that was harvested uh, three years ago that we aged for three years. Again, back to rednecks in southern indiana yes. he's yes. growing wormwood in this back freaking yard uh, he's not only it's growing amazing. wormwood i've been there and there's a forest yeah of well, wormwood. well last time i was here you, it was your birthday and you were going home to do a little mushroom hunting yep man that has been a little <laughs> like, bit oh yeah i didn't realize that was how long I'm so sorry. one thing oh, you're, you're I one thing that I'm not big on I so like the Victorian era stuff the Belle Epoque stuff and again uh, Jade Liqueurs is great at that so they tend to go like the super heavy anise very sweet very cloying very dessert like yeah I tend to go more herbal I want some of that bitter compound to come to the forefront and I think that that sure. bitter compound is definitely here it's a little savory like a little even um think in terms of like culinary devices like something like Worcestershire sauce like a little of that savory comes to the forefront a little bitterness comes to the forefront maybe even a little of that saline sort of characteristic comes to the forefront but that anise is still there it's just not straight black licorice though because there's so yeah. many modifying elements now your black pepper comment yeah. so actually cinnamon there's a little bit of cinnamon in this okay a little bit of vanilla that makes this. sense so you know it's kind of funny too because um I have a lot of people I, I'm trying to introduce to absinthe because I love absinthe. And when I'm in the bar, I'll, everybody's had Jaeger. Right. Everybody's had Jaeger. So what I do is I take your absinthe little blue and do um, two or um, yeah, one part that, one part Fernet. I'm yeah. like, this is what what Jägermeister should have been. It's what it wishes it was, yeah. And it's like, everyone tastes it like, oh, I get it. Oh, I get it. And it's like, it doesn't take long before I realize I've got for it's good. Home, no, I'm doing this. You when, should. Oh, the absolute yeah. blue and that one, so one, one part one. to one, just a little yeah. small little drink and sip it. it it's what you Jaeger should well, shoot it. Sure. It'll calm your stomach, too. It will. Right? Yeah. After you, have a, after you have a big meal. Okay. So, real quick. What he did with his. Explain that process for us, Alan. Yeah, so this that's what's called the 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 louche or the lelouch. So okay. um that's the that's the I hesitate to use the word proper, but that's the traditional way to drink absinthe. And sometimes it's done with sugar, sometimes it isn't. But typically okay. ice cold water um, added to absinthe at a rate of about one part absinthe to maybe three parts water. And what happens is all the essential oils fall out of suspension and you drop the proof. So you end up drinking your absinthe at around 14% alcohol, basically. Um, and then the the proper way to loosh is what Justin was trying is trying to do here is to catch to where you have, to me, at least just a little line of alcohol that floats right on top. Oh, um, shags. Shook it up. If you watch, I don't know if your camera will be able to see this or not, but you can watch it cloud. See right there. Right there? Yeah. And usually you do this very slow. It might be... Yeah, yeah right it's commonly it. done with a dripper. Yes. And a lot of times over top oh. of a... Sugar I should cube. have been patient. Yeah. You're saying. Although, I don't typically drink mine with a sugar cube because I don't find that it needs it. I don't like sugar <clears throat> cubes on them either. I do have a question. Um, so, there, you can see it's starting to really. Oh, there it is. Oh, there it yeah. is. I did mine way too Damn, fast. Yeah, that's a really distinct line yeah, in there. It's a hell of a luge. All right. I'm so on. you say cinnamon. I need to find yep. a place to dump um, this. With no. You can just heat. do it right on the ground, brother. I uh, know. Throw it on a barrel. Look how heavy. There's it is. no drain in here. Just dump it. It's all right. 
What Drink you, it, Rob. What you're looking for is kind of an opalescence. Sorry. So with that cinnamon. So did honey, I not go far enough with mine? No, I don't believe okay. so. So cinnamon can sometimes get a little muddy. Yeah. Right. Home. <laughs> <laughs> this guy throws it in the. It's the water bottle. It's like I, I'll have later. Yep. All right. I want to do it right. I way. get that cinnamon thing, and I know you're not saying what you're using to darken it as. We're going to talk later. So I still need I to go my... further until it's that purple color. Wait, I don't know. If, maybe you didn't have enough in there, and maybe you're okay. moving too far. Could <laughs> be. Well, this is too far. Yeah, his is green. I don't know why. Yeah. Well, if you guys dump yours, I was I was, I was first pour off of it. Maybe we should have shook it a little more, about like this right here. Okay. And you can see there's still a line of alcohol left on top here. Now, the most people will go ahead and go further than that, but I tend to like mine at a little higher proof. So yeah, up there, you go a little bit more. One more. Yeah. yeah, you want that that alcohol line at top to be just just. If you want to throw yours? I'll give you a little drink of this one. That way you get an idea of what it really is. Why did to you do that to that like barrel? That's <laughs> good for it. Is that what we're talking? Getting closer. Getting close? A little more. You want the line to be gone. Almost. Almost, yeah. Just like right at the, the brink of... Keep going. Uh, yep. Yeah, Keep going. I, I really just oh, nailed that barrel with absinthe. That's all good. It ain't going to hurt nothing. Be all right. Smidge more. All right, just a skosh. <laughs> just, just a skosh. Yep. That's so, and the other day, this wasn't a, a darker that, color. Yeah, it was yeah. more of a charcoal color. Yeah. But that's the thing with absinthe coloration because you're doing it naturally with plants. <laughs> They're not always completely stable. I was just say the other day, it, like, it was black. Yeah. So, uh, mm -hmm. Justin. Yes. Let's hear your top distilleries right now or what you're, what you're drinking apart from the stuff that you contribute in making. Um. One of the distilleries that I will always, always, always follow. Jeff the Cree. No. <laughs> I will fight a Sorry. motherfucker <laughs> if they hand me a glass of Jeff We're the Cree. Oh my um, gosh. Moldy Corn City, man. <laughs> Moldy Corn City, yeah. Um, no, MB Roland is going to be one that I okay, will always follow. Okay. If you Have you ever had MB Roland? I have not. The no. only way I can describe pretty much every Every bourbon or whiskey that they put out is... their smoky ones. Now, the smoky one is different. Um, yeah. it, it's called Dark Fired. It's, yeah. They smoke their corn. If you like smoke, you will like it. If you don't like smoke, you will absolutely fucking hate it because gotcha. it's, it's... It's like Lay's barbecue chip smoke. Yeah, like... So, you know... The, it's not the, peat smoke. You know the bark on the outside of a, a pork loin when you smoke yeah. it? It's like that times 10. It's smoke. But yeah, like their sure. their other stuff that they do the the rye and the bourbon, to me they have one of the most unique flavor profiles out there as far as craft distilling because I don't know if you have all have ever chewed tobacco before. Uh, so yeah. Levi Garrett or Redman, mm -hmm. that sweet molassesy note mm -hmm. is there with what they're doing. Now we'll say. Uh. They've recently went from 15s to 53s. I think they were doing something like more 15s in the beginning, some 53s, and then th throughout the process moving to more 53s. I think they're losing a lot of that when they're going to 53s. I wish they would have just stayed with 15s, in all honesty. Um, but they have one of the most unique flavor profiles that I'll throw out there. Um, I've kind of followed them for a little while, even before I got into uh, distilling and things like that. 
other than that, uh, there's, and I can't remember the name of it, but there's a Balcones bottle that I've got at home that I'm savoring just because it's, it's like mesquite smoky, which yes. is really, really interesting. We just got a bottle of that. We did. Um, well, it, it was not peated. mesquite. It was peated. legitimately peated. Yeah. What we got. There's one of those, um, I don't have anything botanical at home that I'm kind of savoring. I'm, not, I'm thanks to Alan, I'm kind of getting into some of the, the botanical stuff as far as just weird, funky, grungy things. Um, shit, that's really about it. And all I'll say, I, and I'll, I will put it out there out front. Like I don't drink as much now as I used to. Like getting into this, I've actually slowed down a little bit. I don't know why, <laughs> but it, it's thing. it's part of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, those those couple there are the ones that I will either chase or always go back to. They're like the backbone of my what I like flavor yeah. profile wise. So cool. yeah, well, uh, I think we should probably wrap this yeah, up because I, I think know. Alan's got to get out of here. here so it's so. oh, all good. I appreciate you guys coming and doing this. No, this is great. Um, <clears throat> I'm gonna get you some more of that absinthe. I'll send it to you. Okay. Um, I think you can have fun pairing that with a cigar too, because I think there's enough savory and mouthfeel there. There'd be something cool. I agree. And honestly, if the if the the water was a little colder, I think it would have actually yep. popped. It usually does when the water's cold. That's that's a very particular part. I want to make a Sazerac with that and that. Yeah, <laughs> just because. Be fun. I mean, I I could probably do that. <laughs> well, and by probably do that, I'll probably do that when we get the bottles when we first get them delivered. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apple Saz. <laughs> Apple Saz. I like that could it. Be so. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at the Whiskey Pastor. Alan, you want to shout out your Instagram and also your, your other podcasts? I'll just do my normal thing because I don't remember any of my social media. So you can find me at thealchemistcabinet.com. You can find me at the One Piece of Time Distilling Institute on YouTube. You can find me at the Stiller's Talk Podcast, wherever you get your podcast. And you can find, if you have ghosts, you have everything wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, and if, um, if you don't catch those right out of the way, Isaiah, I'm going to ask you to add those to the show notes <laughs> right. at the bottom of the yeah. Podcast. Uh, if I remember, try get it done. Try hard. 452 links later. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and how about you, bud? Uh, so you can find me on Facebook, uh, Justin Whaley. You can also find me on the Still Learning Podcast if I ever put out another episode. Yes, fuck you, Alan. I know you're going to say that. Um, <laughs> it, are you done yet? Fuck you. <laughs> uh, yeah, Still Learning Podcast and Justin Whaley on Facebook. Yeah, and you can follow us on Instagram at Final Third Cigar. Uh, thanks a lot, guys. We really appreciate you guys coming out. Absolutely. Good seeing you guys again, Absolutely, as always. Amanda. I feel like we are kindred spirits on a lot of the stuff we love, and we're excited to have your product in there and to hopefully do more in the future. So I'm looking forward to it, man. Yeah, thanks a lot, guys, and we will see you all next week. Cheers. Cheers.